I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Mark Cushing, author of Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our our homes, culture, and economy. The pet population in the United States has almost doubled since 1998. Nearly 70% of the country now owns a pet who sleeps in a better bed than we do. Wall Street is pumping Boku bucks into pet businesses. Entire stores are devoted to pet gourmet organic delicacies. And mobile pet salons, pet spas, pet psychics, and pet masseuses are all on the rise. Mark Cushing, founder and CEO of Animal Policy Group, explains how and why pets exploded in popularity over the last 20 years and the economic, media, legal, political, and social dramas springing from this cultural transformation. He's been featured on CNBC, The Washington Post, New York Magazine, Sirius Radio, and more. Welcome to the show, Mark. Nice to have you on today. Thank you, Catherine. Great topic. Yeah, it is a great topic, and I'm not surprised because just anecdotally, I see so many people with all their pets, walking their pets on the street. I'm in New York City. I can't tell me, you know, there are dogs all over the place. Uh, So past 20 years, though, Mark, why the sort of influx of these animals into our lives? Why do more people, as you say, as I read in the intro, uh, over the past 20 years, pet owners have just proliferated here in the United States. Why? Well, lots of reasons, and you're in ground zero, literally in Manhattan. You would think the density would make it difficult, but you can't walk down Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue and not have a, a squadron of Great Danes or Afghans heading towards you, you know, led by a dog walker. Um, and, and New York typifies what's happened. It started really in the childhood of baby boomers when pets began to come inside, and, and I always put the finger at this, the amazing dog called Lassie. Uh, perhaps you're too young to remember that dog, but, but that was a fixture for most baby boomer kids growing up, and you begin to see see pets in a different light, and, and the, the bringing dogs and cats inside. Uh, of course, in the city, that wasn't the case as much. But what changed was people began to experience their pets inside their home for a longer period of time. They got on the floor with them. They rolled in the rug with them. And what happened? Well, the human-animal bond kicked in. And and I know your studies showed you this, but, but it's a chemical fact in our brains that your oxytocin level goes up when you're engaged with a pet, and that's what makes you relaxed and calm and, and ultimately happy. And your cortisol level goes down, which is a source of anxiety and stress. And so people realized kind of what they had. And it wasn't like cats or dogs demanded the change or had a union organizer and said, we want a better living conditions, but they came inside and then they marched straight into the bedroom. And, you know, 75% of all pets sleep on top of the bed of their pet parents. Now there's probably a $300 fleece doggy or kitty bed to the left or the right of the bed that they might use for 10 minutes during the day, but they're on top now. They're right in the middle of things. And and that change then led dog owners, New York's great example, to figuratively march right out the front door and take their dogs everywhere. So half the story of Pet Nation is the presence of pets now, and, and it's, it's surging, meaning the number of pets is growing 
and the places that people want to take them is growing. And that's had, you know, social impact. It's not always met with joy and, and, and gratitude by everybody around them, particularly in their restaurants and so forth. But it's a wholesale change, ultimately driven by media, uh, in my view, both traditional media and now social media, which we could talk about. Let's talk about also, because you mentioned the, the, I think you mentioned the pros really of having pets. It helps to mitigate depression and loneliness and, and it gets all those good chemicals going in our bodies. But let we can talk about some more of the pros, but what are some of the cons? Why, what are the, yeah, what are the cons? What, why should we perhaps not have a pet or a pet is not good for us or our family? Actually, I thought of one thing when you were talking about what, I forgot what you said, 70%, 80% of pets sleep with their owners. Uh, you know, they're always telling you, don't let the kids sleep in bed with you. It's not good for your relationship, not good for your sex life. Well, what about pets? Is that a good thing or, or a bad thing? <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that it helps your sex life, Kim. I'm not, I'm not saying pets are so wonderful that, that they're, uh, they're part of that process. Uh, they probably interfere as much as kids would. They just don't talk about it in English or, or, or a language you know. But um, the negative is interesting. I'm going to start with, with what's a controversial part of my book in my last chapter, which is Pope Francis I. Now, Pope Francis I picked his name Francis from St. Francis of Assisi, who was the patron saint of animals. And you would think he would have got a memo about that. But he gave an interview to an Argentinian journalist and then repeated this point in a number of sermons, heavily criticizing, not subtly, but heavily criticizing people's engagement with pets, to answer your question. He said it's basically a zero-sum game. If you love your pet too much, if you're too involved with a cat or a dog, you don't have anything left inside you for people. Your empathy level goes down. You, you care less about people. You do less good works, if you will, for people in need. And doesn't cite any evidence for it, and I can't find any evidence for it. And I know your background. You may have seen some evidence. But in my experience in talking to psychologists, talking to counselors, talking to people that work with uh, people in stressful situations where pets can be helpful. Basically, pets tend to bring out the best in people. They take isolated, in some cases, very introverted people that, that don't have much social contact with folks, <clears throat> and they create a safe way for them to engage with people. And I don't think it, I don't think the zero sum notion works, period. But it was interesting. He's made that argument that you could, you can be too engaged and you ignore people. I don't think so. The other thing about social media, I want to, before you get into social media, I just want to add to that because I don't necessarily agree with him, but I just want to add a piece to that because, yes, I agree. I think in terms of bonding and relationships and kids taking care of pets, which is a good thing, they learn how to be responsible, all of those kinds of things, if they do it. But I had three boys, all two years apart, and I, I felt like I... I couldn't handle another pet. You know, everybody in the family said, oh, we'll take care of the pet. Well, I knew that wasn't going to be true. I'm up all night with the kids. I can't get up and, you know, take the dog for a walk or I don't want to. I suppose I could. So I said, no, no dogs. And then I said, and you will, and this is, you'll have to just tell your psychiatrist when you grow up that your mother wouldn't let you have a dog and we'll have, we're going to leave it at that. <laughs> I'm serious. So I just have to throw that in there because... Well, that, you know, that's, yeah. a good, that's a fair point, uh, Catherine. That, that really is. And, and pets, you don't get a pet if you can't be engaged with it, if you can't take care of it. We have two cats and they're bingles, which are these Olympian cats 
that are wild. They, they entertain you all day long, but you got to keep your eye on them if you want to keep anything safe in your house. And we have a Papillon puppy who's this little, you know, French dandy that I live in, the, in Arizona. He just chases desert lizards when he gets a chance. So, you know, I got I got to watch that. Uh, yeah. The other day he chased not a lizard but a coyote. I I tried to talk him back from that, but uh, it's a challenge. But I I think ultimately, particularly with kids, you know, pets do give you a sense of another living being that needs some help, and and it teaches you. But it, it also creates social capital, and this is one of the themes of my book, and, and it came out of research that was in Perth, Australia, you know, on the Indian Ocean, which is a city that looks a lot like San Diego, and they studied three neighborhoods, and they tried to figure out, it was a blind study, it didn't go in to try to prove a point, it tried to figure out what is the factor that drives a community to work, reduces tension, reduces loneliness, creates some sense of community, you know, promotes engagement, people are just overall comfortable. It was it churches, no. Was it schools, no. Was it sports, no. Music, no. Certainly wasn't politics. It was pets. And that study came to the States, and, and I met with the, uh, the principal researcher with a team of folks, and we replicated it in San Diego, Portland, Oregon, where I'm from originally, and in Nashville, same answer. So there's a, there's a certain social value to pets, and, and you see it on the street or you see it my brother lives near uh, uh, Madison Park or Madison Square Park near Italy in, in, in New York. And we often see this. You see two strangers walking down the street. If they don't have a dog, many times they won't even make eye contact, right? There's a certain sense of invading somebody's space. So they just pass each other and life goes on. If they've got a dog on a leash, they stop and talk. Um, and they don't talk about the money they make or where they work kind of car they drive? Do they have a place in the Hamptons? They don't do any of that. They just talk about the pets. And it creates this sense of safety and comfort, and, and it takes people out of their own world. And I like that. I think that's, in many ways, besides the personal value of just feeling better, that social capital, to me, is very powerful. And that's one of the, one of the issues I push pretty hard in the book. And I think I don't see any negatives to that, other than there are people that have allergies the people who don't like going into a restaurant having to walk around the dog, and I get that. That's that's not comfortable, but I think in the scheme of things, we can tolerate it. Well, I'll give you two good examples. One sort of ties in with what you're saying about uh, people on the street and connecting because of an animal. Uh, I had a friend in Georgetown. She got divorced, and one of the things was she got this really great dog, and if you went into certain parks, uh, that was a way to meet, in this case, a man, and... Uh, because you, you start, you know, it get it, if you, you start talking about your dog and, um, and, and it worked. She got a lot of dates out of that, which I think is a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I had, yeah, I, I, I had a convertible once and a pretty good-sized dog. And, and you know, if I, if I pulled into a, a shopping center or a grocery store, you know, I, I could have a conversation pretty quickly. I mean, it was, it was interesting. And it was never me. It was always, what a great dog. What's that dog's name? You know, and then after that conversation takes off. So the other thing about it that, that, that impressed me was 30 years ago in veterinary schools, a handful of faculty coined this term human-animal bond and began to promote this idea that pets have a value beyond just they're cute and fun. And, and a lot of people dismissed it like your grandmother's flu remedy. It's like, yeah, sure, that's, that's anecdotally interesting, but there's no science. Flash forward, there are now 32,000 entries in the Purdue University Vet School's library 
related to or reflecting peer-reviewed research on the human-animal bond. And it's what it shows is that for adolescents about to have cardiovascular surgery, if they're with their pet in the hour or two before surgery, they, can, they require a lower dosage of pain meds when they're done, which is a good thing, right, because they're not getting exposed to opioids. Seniors that aren't eating regularly in nursing homes, if they watch an aquarium and they watch fish feeding, their eating habits improve. PTSD soldiers, a study out of Notre Dame or Purdue and Maggie O'Hare was phenomenal about the dramatic impact in terms of beneficial value of having a pet engaged in their therapy. And there's a legion of examples like this. Uh, adolescent uh, girls who've been sexually abused uh, in equine therapy, just being exposed to and getting comfortable again, you know, after a horrendous experience doesn't cure them. Autistic kids, it doesn't cure autism, but it improves, lowers the tension level, improves the sort of communication and just sensibility of a family if the presence of a pet. So, you know, hospitals in New York, where you live, New York is one of the last states that allowed dogs in hospitals. And I remember as a kid, if you saw a dog in a hospital, it was just get out of here, chase it, open the door, you don't belong in here. Find a hospital now that doesn't have animal-assisted therapy dogs where the dogs are part of the treatment. So those kind of transformations, nobody saw coming. And, and, and that, to me, is, is really the compelling story about what I call pet nation. Well, it's that unconditional love that we're all searching for uh, that we don't often get or sometimes don't get from the people that we want it from, but we do get it from our animals or our dogs when we treat them well. Um, it, it's usually when I have, a, and I, I love animals, I love dogs, um, I don't have one, but I, I think you, if there is an issue, it's not with the animal, it's usually with the animal owner that they don't underst- <laughs> understand yeah, no. the boundaries with the dog, just like parents and, and kids, you know, I mean, oh, I'm walking no, down yeah, the you, street. Yeah. Yeah. Your kids uh, can't do any wrong. You know, my, my, my boy yeah. didn't do that. I had, I have four daughters and a son and, and, and I know that feeling. And I do have to laugh when I always put, put, put the brakes on the unconditional love quality for pets when it moves from dogs to cats, you know, cats view people as staff. Um, and that we have two cats, and I love this fact about them. That they are they are so condescending if they want to be. You know, it's come pet me, stop petting me. I need some food. That's enough. Come over here and know this is my place. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, whether it's conditional or unconditional, that, the difference between those species, and, and you see that. You know, you probably have friends in New York that are cat people. I, I, the publishers at Penguin Random House, there, there were a lot of cat folks in that team. And, and they're distinctly different. That's, that's the other thing about pets that are fun is that every, even if they come from the same litter, you can't recognize a, two puppies. They, they just have distinctly different personalities, and uh, it makes it more interesting. But, you know, now we're at this point, uh, you mentioned you had three sons. So we have 60% of pets in this country owned by millennials and Gen Zs, and they have more pets already than their parents had. And, and that's sort of the legacy now, and, and that's why I tell people it's not a fad. It's, folks say, are we about done with this? And it's like, what are you talking about? Millennials can't get enough pets. You think their kids are going to have fewer pets? No, of course not. It's, and that's why the economics of this industry have exploded, and frankly, the, the pet healthcare, the veterinary system, was, wasn't even close to prepared for the surge in ownership and demand for healthcare for their pets because millennials want healthcare 
at the same quality and scale that they get for themselves. And, so and let me ask you this, Mark. I want to stop you there yeah. because that's a good point. They do, and not that they shouldn't, but uh, taking a look at the other side, what happens when it becomes too expensive for, pe- for people? And I know that's one of the issues. You know, people who have a pet with, and why every why the pet is healthy, everything is fine, and they can afford to buy the food and take care of them and take them to the vet. But then they need some surgery or they need, you know, the cost – there's no insurance and it costs $500 or even more, thousands of dollars. There's a whole moral dilemma there. What do you do? Do you spend the money on your animals or on your it's a household? Great, great, yeah. great question. And, and, and there's, I have to say it, there's a lot of ignorance about one fact that pet insurance has surged from 1% of pets to 4%. I say that cynically, right? In other words, there's been an increase in pet insurance the past 10 years, and you could look at it and say it's four times as big as it was 10 years ago, but it's still 4% of pet owners, which means, and millennials are changing this, but people don't understand, you know, spend literally 20 to $25 a month, maybe 40 Spend it for five or six years because when you get that hip replacement, when you get a cancer treatment, for a golden retriever when they're nine years old and it's a $10,000 bill, it isn't anymore. It's covered by insurance and you're in good shape. But people look at this healthy puppy and go, hmm, I don't know who wants to spend 30 bucks a month doing that. So it's been hard for pet insurers to convince pet owners of the bargain. I think that's going to change rapidly now with millennials because they, they, they are used to that and other facets of their life. Um, but access to care, you know, a different side of your question is is a critical issue right now. You have many cities where the emergency clinics for pets have a 48-hour wait. Well, you're not an emergency clinic if you have to wait two days. And I did uh, recently uh, uh, TV interviews for Fox, LA, and uh, NBC, or excuse me, ABC in San Francisco. Prompted by what? Prompted by this question of shortages because the producers of the show had friends whose dogs just died because they couldn't get in to see a veterinarian in L.A. and in San Francisco. So, you know, that's a real issue right now, and we don't produce nearly the number of veterinarians we need, and you can't catch that up quickly. So it's, that's a challenge because that's driving prices up, right? That's just inevitably yeah, supplies short. Exactly. I don't think there are that many veterinarian uh, veterinary schools I mean I can name a few of them but uh, a few of the major ones Cornell and Tufts and Penn State and what Michigan there are very few you want to hear it's Penn not Penn State if people in Philadelphia get mad at you but uh, here's a fact by the way there are 33 vet schools there's 185 medical schools in the country but between 1978 in 2014, for 36 years, and I spend a lot of work, I have a number of clients that are veterinary schools, and I've started new schools, so I, I've been in the middle of this. From 1978 to 2014, we opened one vet school in this country. And you know why? Because nothing had changed. It was still kind of, you take your dog or cat to a vet, maybe down kind of a strange street. You leave them, you come back, you pick them up, they fixed it, that's it. Um, no sense of the, the nature of healthcare that, that people now expect, particularly with smartphones and telemedicine and all the ways you can engage with a health professional in your own life that people want for their pet. And, and that's been a real struggle for six years. I've been heavily involved in and still am 
trying to get veterinarians to understand how you can use technology to reduce the demand in your clinic because 80% of the time people just have questions about what do I do with this? You know, I'm looking at my dog and I don't know anything about dogs, bodies and all, but what does this mean? And you don't need to come into a clinic and get staff all wound up. As you know, you don't need to go to an ER as a human sometimes for your general, and if you have the flu, but we have a culture that's doing that. Well, on the pet side, it's increasing uh, dramatically. So that's, that is a real challenge, and, and it's not easily fixed. Let's talk about some of the, because I mentioned this earlier in the uh, introduction, uh, you know, all right, taking care of your pets, but is it necessary? I, I think about this too. Uh, we have gourmet foods for pets. We have, as I said, you know, they have these, if they're not sleeping in bed with you, they have a better bed than you do. Uh, and also that they all, <laughs> pet salons, spas, you know, psychics, also psychiatrists. Uh, that's a big, those are big businesses. And I guess that's why Wall Street is on board. Let's talk about the economics of it. Because is that going overboard with the pets? Should we be spending that kind of money or those well, monies on us or our kids or, um, here's, or here's just the thing. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, should, should, should a senior who has a cat deny herself food to feed her cat? No. Uh, she also shouldn't feed her cat human food. Uh, that's the reason why her cat's 22 pounds and she might be, you know, 80 pounds and needs to yeah. gain weight. Uh, and, and there are real, real life examples of that. Um, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, are some of them pure indulgences, but, but we have indulgences that we purchase and, and enjoy in every facet of our life. Um, pets are living beings. They have the same system, organic systems, lung, heart, and, and so forth that people have, and they live shorter lives. So you can, you can make the case that they need all the health care they're getting. Um, but it, it has changed dramatically in terms of what people are willing to pay for. Um, and what they want. And let me tell you how fast it's grown. About five years ago, America spent about $70 billion a year on pets. Compared to just about everything, that wasn't much. Didn't seem like much. $110 billion last year. And Morgan Stanley says just in eight years, even before 2030, so about 2028, it's going to be just short of $300 billion because people want to enjoy their pets they want them to be healthy. They like to see them in cute Halloween outfits. They want to see a different Halloween outfit this year than last year. That seems kind of silly, right? But it's true. Um, and on, on the food side, uh, what's, what's happened is the same kind of nutritional values that people are trying to adhere to or, or, or in fact, you know, living by for themselves, guess what? They look at their dog food and go, wait a second, what's that? What are all these things? And I don't want that. And, and it's interesting, and people that make their own food for their dogs, I, I don't, or, or our cats, I, I don't do that. But I have good friends that do, and they swear by it. So, um, I mean, there's no accounting for people's individual tastes, right? And I think Wall Street's made a really smart bet on pets. I mean, I don't see anything that would take what I just described and flip that in the next few years and have people stop doing it and going back to the grocery store and buying, you know, uh, dry dog food that's yeah. been there for eight months or something. So I, no, I think that, that train's left the station. So, so economically, are you saying, and I'm not going to hold you to this, but just uh, a good investment, anything that's related to pet food? and, and yeah. uh, Yes. Yeah, that's what you're saying. <laughs> you <have> <laughs> Morgan Stanley yeah. is saying bye-bye. Okay. That's what's happened. I mean, there, a, a, a real simple example. If 
five years ago, there were around 10 companies that were buying veterinary clinics and consolidating them, you know, what industry calls roll-ups, 65 to 70 now. And, and the multiples they're paying for practices, veterinarians that sold their practice three years ago are kicking themselves going, oh, my God, why didn't I wait to 2021? COVID, you know, COVID hit in, in February, March of 2020, and nobody knew what was going to happen to their life, their career, their business. Veterinary medicine had the best year ever, only followed by this year, the best year ever, that demand for their care. Um, so I think Wall Street's looked at pets and, and gotten over the hump that it's kind of a fad and they're cute. To, this is a sustainable growing, and, and, and they, they call me a lot about that. I say, yeah, why would millennials, Gen Zs, and their kids reduce the number of pets? They would only do it if they couldn't get the services they needed. But I think that's true. Sure you that COVID. I mean, COVID and quarantine, quarantining for a year, uh, pets are, are, were a great source of, I think, relief and being able to have, you know, what we talked about in the beginning of the show. I mean, they helped alleviate the loneliness and the depression by the being isolated. So uh, I'm not surprised at what you're saying, that the whole sort of... Well, and, just, and, and yeah. what's interesting right now, and, and, you know, Wall Street's facing this as well as, you know, the middle of America, as companies try to pull people back into their offices, a central issue, not a, not a collateral issue, a central issue is... You know, we got this puppy 16 months ago, and no, I'm, I'm not coming in five days a week with an hour commute each way. I'm not devoting 10 to 11 hours a day to being away from this puppy and having a stranger come into my home or trying to find a daycare with you know, 70 other dogs. Not comfortable, and, and that's, that's a matter of negotiation right now in a lot of companies who at a minimum are saying, well, how about one day a week or how about three days a week? And, and pets are driving a lot of that conversation. And, and it's, it, is it for the pet's sake? You know, owners might say so, but I think in many cases it's as much for their own sake. It's like, you know, in I, other words, I I'll like leave it. my screaming kids. That's okay, but I want to go back to yeah, my please. job. Let's face back it. To, well, we only have a couple I, minutes left. This is okay. a great conversation, and your book is great too. So, I mean, uh, Thank you. I just want, yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transform- transforming our homes, culture, and economy. And uh, Mark Cushing is the author. He's also an attorney. And there's also lots more to talk about with him. But read the book because we just sort of covered the surface, I think, of the of the topics. But if you want to get into the details, go out and buy the book. So, uh, Mark, website and or websites we can go to for more information about the book and about you. So, Mark L. Cushing dot com is my author's website uh, and you'll see some of my my gorgeous puppy and a little bit of life <laughs> in the desert and then my my business is animalpolicygroup.com that's kind of a mouthful animalpolicygroup.com and we're a team we have a team of nine of us around the country uh, and and that's we're in the middle of all the battles and, and all the dramas so uh, I appreciate your your great questions and uh uh, you got a great, great podcast. So thanks for, for inviting me. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. I'll be following you. Okay. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 